0: All right, how we doing? Good, sir. good deal. We are in part three of our series. Very good. Uh, this is really the the turning point. We've talked about what is a man, what is a woman, what's God's purpose for marriage, and now part three is where we kind of we get to the hump, and we got to really talk about uh, something the church doesn't talk about a lot. Um, and today we're going to talk about a little bit about divorce. Um, there's just simply no way that we can talk about marriage and talk relevantly about marriage in America uh, today without addressing that. Um, and so today we're going to talk not just about divorce, uh, but we're going to talk about the, the way to talk about divorce, the way God looks at divorce, how to, how to address people who are divorced in the church Uh, Or not in the church. Um, Before we start, before we pray, I want to kind of get some things uh, really just out there because I feel like I've got a there's a big old caterpillar driving right around there. Um, And one of those is we're going to talk a lot about uh, theology and how God looks at divorce. We're going to talk about the Bible. We're going to talk about a big picture view of divorce. But I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that divorce is an extremely sensitive subject. Um, and we need to understand that, yes, divorce is a theological problem. Yes, it is a, it's something that uh, is offensive to God and it's a sin. It's also deeply personal. Uh, and countless lives have been wrecked by divorce. Um, it's a tragedy. I want you all to know also that my mom is divorced. Uh, she would not mind me sharing that. Um, basically, I want you all to know that even though I, I'm not a part of a, uh, a product of a divorced home, divorce has affected me in my life. Um, there's really nowhere you can go today without knowing some. Raise your hand if you know somebody's divorced. All right. If you don't, then I was gonna was gonna ask. <laughs> um, and so we really, I feel like the, the church has kind of dropped the ball a little bit because you don't hear a lot of pastors talking about divorce. And I think that's because, one, it's an incredibly sensitive subject. Um, the other thing I wanted to, to mention was um, I understand there are people in our church, even some of you who, who are could be divorced, um, we're going to talk today and I'm going to speak very clearly about divorce but I want to want us to understand the Bible does and we're going to see does prescribe when there are very lawful, righteous good reasons for divorce um, so not all divorce from not all of divorce is a sin at least from one person's perspective the Bible says um, for sexual morality reasons uh, I would I would I, I believe that the Bible also contends that uh, a woman has grounds for abuse, uh, abandonment. Um, there are reasons, biblical reasons, for divorce. There are going to be times tonight when I'm going to say divorce, and what I mean is um, sinful divorce. Okay? So there might be times where I say divorce, and, and, and you might want to go, well, what about this? We're going to cover those. But I may say divorce tonight, and, I, and I, what I mean is um, unbiblical, sinful divorce. Um, and then last, I just wanted to end with, um, I do not mean to ostracize or denigrate or put down or diminish anyone who is divorced. We're going to talk about that. Um, I think a lot of churches today treat divorcees like second-class citizens, and they should not do that. Um, God's grace extends to those who've been divorced. Um, now, obviously, there's you know Paul has some things about being disqualified by the, by the church leadership, uh, but I just wanted to get that out there before we start because I don't talk about divorce all the time, um, and but when we do, uh, we need to be very clear what we mean, and that's what I mean. Um, I don't I don't want to make light of divorce, um, but we want to be clear as possible because the Bible speaks very clearly. So without any further ado, let's, let's go to Lord in prayer before we begin. Father, with such a sensitive subject, show us your will for man and woman. Reveal to us by your Holy Spirit tonight... What you meant when you looked upon Adam and Eve and you said it is very good. Father, show us what is not good, but show us what is good. So that we can know right from wrong, but even more so that we can love what is good. And that is marriage that honors Jesus as Lord. Now all these things we ask in your son's name, amen. Since we last met... Since we last met, that was seven days ago, the United Methodist Church called for a special general conference in 2019 so that they can propose giving bishops now the individual authority within their respective parishes to perform same-sex weddings according to their own conscience. The United Methodist Church is the last mainline denomination not to affirm same-sex marriage, but they are making this announcement because in 2019 they hope to officially affirm, at least in part, the legality and the goodness of homosexual marriage. Since we last met, senior clerics in the Anglican Church have called for their own church to be stripped of its right to operate according to their own convictions about homosexuality and transgender. Meaning, the Anglican Church priests and bishops have now called upon the Anglican Church to no longer have any ground to oppose same-sex marriage. So basically what we've seen last week, both the United Methodist Church and the Anglican Church have taken giant steps to affirming same-sex marriage as good. That's since we last met last week. That's how quickly the moral revolution is happening. Every week something is happening. Two weeks ago it was what? The Boy Scouts. The Boy Scouts are not any longer going to be the Boy Scouts. They're the what? Just the Scouts. Um, And so you see this happening a lot. I think now many American Christians today feel like they're under attack. We've talked about that. Um, I think a lot of American Christians today feel like they're developing this siege mentality, like the culture is against them. The country's against them. The, the, the America's going to hell in a handbasket. Um, things aren't the way they used to be. Um, and you really see Christians reacting in two ways. You see Christians putting their faith in the Lord or, they, or Christians getting really angry and reacting in different ways. And I feel like we can either submit to the sovereignty of God or we can get angry. Um, I think this is one of the reasons that Donald Trump was elected. Um, basically... A lot of people, predominantly white people, feel as if they're losing the culture, and we want to take it back. That really is what they're saying. Um, here's the truth: the sexual revolution did not happen overnight. As fast as it's going right now, these things took time, and we're going to look tonight at what are the, some of the what are some of the reasons this happened. And I'll say this: the church actually contributed to some of it. We're witnessing the fruit of a society and a culture that did not defend biblical marriage. And now we're appalled. Before same-sex marriage was legalized in the Supreme Court, we opened the door with legislation like no-fault divorce. When we normalized divorce, when we refused to call it what it was, when we condoned it as commonplace in the church, and when we refused to stop talking about it in the church because we were afraid to hurt people's feelings, the homosexual community was watching. And what they were saying to us and what they're saying now is, you didn't even abide by your own Bible's teachings. If you don't practice biblical marriage, then we're not going to either. And a lot of this is on the church. For a long time, there were so many people who got divorced, and we knew them. They were part of our families. They were us. They were our friends. So what we did is we silently put divorce in a corner, and we covered it up, and we didn't talk about it. We were more happy just to treat homosexuals and laugh at them and point at them and say, well, those people over in California, those people, those liberals... Um, or those fairies over in Hollywood. Meanwhile, divorce was rampant in our own churches, and we called homosexuality an abomination, and we saw their sin as less than ours. I had a friend who got married in college, and he, he, he got married at Auburn. That was probably his first mistake. I'm kidding. Then he went away to grad school, And he fell in love with another girl. And so he said to his friends and to me and to his family that his first marriage was a mistake and he told his parents that he wanted a divorce. And instead of treating their son and his wife like a one-flesh union, like we learned last week in Genesis 2. Instead of pointing this man to the gospel and to the unconditional love of Jesus for his bride, like we learned last week about what the marriage is supposed to reflect, instead of reminding their son that marriage was a gift from God to sanctify him, his parents said this, we just want you to be happy. If that makes you happy, we don't like it but go ahead and get a divorce. That is a small picture of our society. Whatever makes you happy. This kind of do-whatever-makes-you-happy culture. This kind of my-priority-is-me culture. And if that's where we are, how can we be surprised when homosexuals want to get married too and they tout the exact same line, it makes me happy. There's an old saying, marriage, is about hap- marriage isn't about happiness, it's about what? Holiness. I kind of like that line, but I, I, it almost makes it sound like marriage isn't is it fun. It almost makes it sound like marriage is an obligation. I would change it to marriage isn't about happiness, it's about holy happiness. Because it almost treats happiness and holiness as if you got to pick one. Marriage is designed to show us that Jesus is our happiness and Jesus is our holiness. Last week we ended with the concept that marriage is a one flesh union. When a husband and a wife come together and wed themselves to one another, their union is physical, it's sexual, it's emotional, it's mental, it's even spiritual. And that union is desiring to mirror the union between Jesus and His bride. This is why God loves marriage. is because it points to Him and His glory and His love. And this is exactly why God hates divorce. Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. I'm going to make a statement. I'm going to make one statement. And I'm going to make it. And then after I say it, I want you to give me a chance to explain it because I'm going to say it and it might sound weird. Okay? Here it is. In the kingdom of God, divorce is as unnatural as homosexuality. In the kingdom of God, divorce is as unnatural as homosexuality. Now if you think I just called divorcees homosexuals, pause for a second. You missed my meaning. Yes, homosexuality is a perversion of marriage. But so is divorce. Homosexuality does not reflect the differentness that God has said is good because it, it, it reflects the gospel. Divorce does not reflect the faithfulness and unconditional love of Jesus. I think today in our churches homosexuality... We still look at homosexuality as this awful sin, and it is. Paul says it's contrary to nature. But divorce has become so prominent in many of our churches that pastors don't want to talk about it anymore. And I really think it harms, if we don't talk about it and talk about what it is and what's happening, it can harm our souls. If you are in Christ today, you have the guarantee of John 3.16. All right, let's see. For God so loved the world that what? That what? said so believe in him. Go ahead, Margaret. <laughs> Margaret's the only one who knows it. Shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen. What she just said is a promise. You can take it to the bank. God will never re-rehash or renege on John 3.16. You're not going to die. Get up to heaven. Go to the gates, and God will be like, oh wait. I remember I said that. Oh no, I was just joking. We're not going to die, get up there and God go, I said that, I didn't mean it. I found found a new thing. We have the hope that God is not going to change His mind from John 3.16. Marriage is designed to picture God's faithfulness in the gospel and it is eternal faithfulness. The picture of two sinners keeping covenant with one another faithfully, is a picture of God's faithfulness. But the more we start to detach the gospel from marriage, the more we start to think that God made marriage for me. we talked a lot about that. When I counsel couples in premarital counseling, I will usually look at the guy, and I will read John 3.16... And I'll tell him, I'll say, you can break your promise to her when God breaks His promise to you. You can break your promise to your wife whenever Jesus breaks His John 3, 6 promise to you. If marriage is given to us to project the faithfulness of God, we have no right to divorce our spouse. None. None. Now, we've seen the rise in divorce for several reasons. This is what Andrew Walker has to say in his new book. If you want evidence of how the sexual revolution has impacted the world, look at the entertainment industry. In every corner of it, there is an unchallenged and unchallengeable assumption that sexual freedom is the highest standard for personal fulfillment. Around the 1960s, when Christian ideas of sexual morality were changed and overturned, coincided and very possibly contributed to industrialized hormonal contraception. This is not the, the debate to debate this is not the book to debate pros and cons of the pill. But one consequence of the pill is its availability was to sever the connection between sex and procreation. This was nothing short of revolutionary. While people in times past engaged in premarital sex, there was always the potential for a pregnancy to occur. Not anymore. And this has enormous repercussions for how society thinks about the purpose of sex. No longer is sex assumed to take place only in marriage. The idea that sex outside is wrong has been overturned. And the risk associated with sex outside of marriage has been negated. The legalization of abortion in 1973 and the resultant lack of stigma completed the separation of having sex and birth. The sexual revolution resulted in positive developments for women's rights, but it also led to declining marriage rates and explosion in the divorce rate. So, we're living in the midst of an age, even in our own churches, where the idea of sex has become detached from the idea of marriage. But the Bible says there is no such thing as casual sex. There is no such thing as casual sex. There is no such thing as friends with benefits. God has designed the one flesh union between a man and a woman as sexual, emotional, physical, spiritual, mental, some of y'all might go on spiritual, I don't get that. Read this, 1 Peter 3:7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Did you catch that last part? That means, husbands, your wife's relationship with you affects your relationship with Jesus. Wives, your husband's relationship to you will affect Jesus' relationship to you. This is how tight and intimate the one flesh union is. Discipleship begins with your marriage. Adultery is unnatural and divorce is unnatural because it's a wrenching apart of something that was designed to never be broken. Something so intimate that God said this should be the tightest bond. Marriage is much more than legal, and divorce is a lot more than legal. Raise your hand if you've ever been dumped. In what? If you've ever been dumped. Dumped? Yeah. You've been, you been dumped? What does dumped mean? Well, you were dating somebody, and then, and then they, they, dumped they dumped you. you. <laughs> <laughs> I've been dumped. Gene, have you ever been dumped? If I do, I don't All right, my brother, have you been dumped? Yeah. Okay. Shay, have you been dumped? Yeah. Who hasn't been dumped other than Gene? Bob, you ever been dumped? can <laughs> <Yeah, okay. laughs> For the people that have been dumped, did it feel good? No. No, it did not. It did not feel good. I can still remember. I mean, I'm married. It's been a long time since I was done. I mean, not long as Roberts. But I was in college, and I still remember the phone call. Oh, phone? Did, phone. Uh, did it on the phone? Did on phone! Did it on the phone! Cool. And I was like, with my little, like, 90s flip phone. I was like, dang. I about wanted to call my mom. <laughs> and... I think it hurts so bad. I mean, we we hadn't even had sexual intercourse. (laughs) I think it's important. I hadn't even wedded myself to this woman sexually, and I was still broken about it. Why is that? Because there's something in me, emotionally, mentally, physically, that attached myself to her. Even as you two are dating. Sorry to call you out. Even as you two are dating, you are uniting with one another. In the time that you spend, in the things that you do, that is a natural human impulse to bond yourself to someone of the opposite sex. That's what courting is. It may not have included sexual intercourse when you dated them, but it did hurt because you're doing something that humans do with the opposite sex, and that's bond yourself with them. My son Roman, we can't even go to Mall of Georgia anymore because he just he he developed this emotional connection to the carousel. <laughs> just, I mean, I, I, you go up to Kelly and go tell me about the carousel, and she will she will get either scream or get a you know big grin on her face because I had to pull that child away <laughs> There's something in Roman already in Ruby too but she's kind of she plays it cool But Roman if he is in your arms and you're loving him and he's loving it not even daddy can pull him away I mean I will But at the at that young age he is already forming little intimate bonds with people That's what we do. Our culture wants us to believe we can just hop around and have sex with whoever we want, and it doesn't have implications for our soul. That's a lie. That's Satan trading the truth about God for a lie. Romans 1. The truth about God is that sex is a picture of the one flesh union between Christ and the church. The lie is that sex doesn't mean anything and it's for your pleasure and not for God's glory. Men, Raise your hand. I, I don't know how many. I, I, I could be none. I don't know. How many of you were taught? I was taught this. I don't know if anybody else. How many of you were? It's not bad. How many of you were taught this by your parents growing up? I, I, I basically got this. Son, now you know if you have sex with a woman before marriage, you're giving yourself away. How many of you ever heard of that? Somebody? Okay. All right. Th- I got that. That's true. That is true. It's incomplete, but it's true. It's good. But I think that it, that's, it's good if we get that, but if we get something else too. Okay. And this is what I, now, let me explain. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. This is what Paul says Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. There it is again. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin, listen to this, every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So there's something about sexual intercourse that is so significant, so beautiful, so divine, that if wielded improperly, it has consequences on our own bodies, our own minds, and our own souls. There is no such thing as casual sex. Sex is a part of that one flesh union pointing to what? We're going to do it a thousand times. What does it point to? Gospel. Now let me say this. That was good advice, but it was lacking something, because I'm going to tell you, when, when, if, if, if you're told, and I'm just saying standard male, I don't know about women because I'm not a woman, standard teenage male, if you tell them that, and you say you're going to give yourself away, but you leave it at that, the average male sexual drive, we going to go ahead and do it at once. There's something lacking there, for the, and it's very important for the way we understand sex. What's lacking is verses 19 and 20, which, which I didn't read, but I'm going to read now. Here's, what, here's the rest that Paul wants us to know. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. And get this, verse 20, this is what Paul says. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body, Paul says. The advice we should be receiving is sexual immorality is a sin that you commit against your own body. That's good. That's that's good advice. But the very end of that advice should be your body isn't even your body. If you call yourself a Christian, you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus. If you have cast your soul to be saved by God, you've been purchased by Christ in order to reflect His love, His holiness, His righteousness, and His character. What we do with our bodies tells the world who or what we're living for. That's the that's the advice I should have received. I didn't. I'm not. I'm not like. You know, I'm not getting on my parents, but when Roman and Ruby grow up, I will teach them that what they sexual sin is against their own body. But I also will teach them the gospel. There is no way to talk about sexual holiness in a meaningful way without pointing. To what Christ did for His church on the cross. Amen. A woman or a man who divorces their spouse because they simply fell out of love, or they couldn't find, or they found a new person, or they couldn't stop arguing. What they're saying is, my commitment to myself is greater than my commitment to Jesus. I've heard people say this. Well, Jesus wants me to be happy. I've heard that one. That one happens a lot. God wants me to be happy, doesn't he? I've been talking to people who want to get out, and you know, they're like, I mean, I mean, God didn't want me to be miserable. What we should remind these people is this. Jesus does want you to be happy, but God is not capable of offering you real, lasting happiness that is not found in him and is not according to his will and his character. There is no lasting happiness that God could even give you that is not found ultimately in Him. Because He is love. Young people across America are being taught that marriage and that their wedding is about them. Have you you all seen these, these shows on TV about women getting ready for their wedding day? I mean... From one perspective, I got to stop and go. In some sense, it is the woman's day. It, men, it sure as heck, it sure as heck ain't gonna be your day. I know that. <laughs> you need to get that straight. It's not the guy's day. It's hers day. From for, from a, from one perspective. But then again, to the ladies, it isn't your day. And this is what I this is what I mean today. Where do, we, where do most weddings occur? A church. In, a church. in a church. But see, we've lost it. Now, today, we get married in churches because it's traditional. Not because we do it under the authority of God and the accountability of God's people. That's why they did it in churches. Today, we, the bride wears white because it means a new beginning. Not because the woman is a virgin to reflect the washed bride of Jesus. We have people go out and find licensed ministers to ordain the wedding because they didn't grow up in a church, they don't know a pastor, and we certainly don't want someone giving us premarital counseling. Do you see how we've kept the traditions of wedding, but we've inserted new meaning? Weddings have become monuments to ourselves and our happiness and not to celebrating the gospel. I did premarital counseling with this couple in Louisville and uh, my rule, I guess, I still have this rule, is uh, if I'm going to marry you, um, I've got to do three sessions of premarital. And we just talk about this stuff. That's what we do. Every single time I've done that, I've ended up doing the wedding, except for this one. By the third time, two days after I did the third session, uh, they called off the wedding. And I'll say, my response, Kelly can tell you, I felt really bad at first. I felt like I sabotaged the wedding. I just, just that was my natural human impulse was, I mean, they'd already bought stuff, they were planning stuff. And I, I just felt bad. I took it hard at first, but I'm going to tell you, both of them thank me today. Both of them do. She says, I can't believe I was going to marry that guy. And the guy says, I can't believe I thought I was ready for marriage. Preparing them for the gospel first, then getting married. So now, now today, both of them understand who they're looking for, but more importantly, who they're doing it for. You know, now I wanna I wanna just take a, a quick word here. It is possible to abstain from premarital sex for the wrong reasons. I don't to do m I don't wanna I don't wanna paint um, virginity and, and staying pure for sex as if as if you've done that then 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 somehow you've checked off all the boxes for, for being a Christian. Being a virgin on your wedding night does not make you a righteous person. The blood of Jesus does that. There are plenty of people who were not virgins on their wedding night, who repented of their sin and came to an understanding that their bodies were vessels of the Lord and their sexual intercourse was pleasing unto the Lord. I told y'all we're going to get deep. This is for deep stuff. This This is for authentic Christians. Time and time again, we keep coming back to this immutable truth. Marriage is for our joy, but it's not about us. Marriage is supposed to point us to what? Gospel. Gospel. So if anybody has a, has a, a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. And by the way, I want y'all to know I've only been dumped once. It's not like I just got dumped all the time. All right, uh, let's go to Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him, Jesus, and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one, what? There it is again. Keeps coming up. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate, or if you have the KJV, tear us under. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. All right. I think it's pretty telling of just how important Genesis is to the idea of marriage when the Apostle Paul quotes it in 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 5, and now our Lord Jesus Christ is quoting it here in Matthew 19. Genesis 2.24 is central to how we understand marriage. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, And the two shall become one flesh. Did you notice what he says in verse 8? Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. He actually says from the beginning twice. He says it once in verse 4, and then says it again in verse 8. From the beginning, he says. That is precisely what Jesus is telling us today. The state of Georgia might allow you to get divorced. The Supreme Court might allow you to get married if you're a homosexual. Your own church may not even touch the issue of divorce. Your own church may affirm LGBTQ... There's another one, another letter, I forgot what it was. But what Jesus is saying is, but from the beginning it was not so. What did we talk about in week one? Manhood and womanhood are creational, not cultural. Manhood and womanhood are creational, not cultural. We don't have the right or the authority to dictate what a man and a woman are. It is extremely arrogant to think that our gender identity could determine our sex. Much less that we would have actually body-altering surgery to dictate what we feel we are, when in fact God has made us as we are. Only God has the authority to determine what man and woman are, and from the beginning He determines so. In verse nine, the Greek word that Jesus used for sexual morality is porneia. That's where we get the word pornography. So sexual morality extends beyond an affair or even a divorce. Sexual morality, porneia, could be having an emotional affair at work. It could be looking at porn on the Internet. That's why, in some cases, if a woman discovers that her husband has a hardcore porn addiction, in many instances, I believe, personally, I'll be, uh, that I think that's grounds for divorce. In many cases. Jesus' point is that a one-flesh union is so tight and so intimate that what you do with your body affects your spouse. You have become one flesh and one body with her. Therefore, if a guy is going behind his wife's back, clearing his browser history, got a stack of magazines somewhere she can't find, if he's lurking around, he's giving himself to that woman who he's not touching, but his heart, his mind is hers, and what the woman should know is what he's doing with his body concerns you because that body is yours. Husbands, your wife's body is yours. Wives, your husband's body is yours. You are one flesh. If I were to go out and look at pornography tomorrow, God forbid, that concerns Kelly Todd. My body is not my own. I've been now purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ to reflect him, his character, his righteousness, his love, his purity, his honor. But now my wife owns my body. That gives new meaning now to the, to, the, to the husband having authority over the wife. Husbands, you have authority over the wife, but in the plan of God, your wife's body is your body and vice versa. Willie Nelson. I can't believe I'm quoting Willie Nelson. <laughs> Once said, there's no such thing as ex-wives, there's just more wives. (laughs) He meant something different than I do. But in some sense, he was actually kind of right. He was actually telling the truth. When we wed ourselves with someone sexually, we're uniting ourselves to them in a very, very permanent way. Divorce and pornography are perversions of human sexuality as much as homosexuality and transgenderism. See, I think we've... In some sense, everyone who's a Christian is a conservative because we're conserving the faith once delivered to the saints. But I think what's happened is that word conservative now has started to detach itself from Christianity. And so what happens now is if you see people lobbying in Capitol Hill for against gay rights, they're defending heterosexual marriage, which is good. But there's a difference between heterosexual marriage and biblical marriage. Just because you're married to a woman and not another man doesn't mean it's honoring for the Lord. You catch my drift? This is one of the biggest reasons we see the moral revolution taking place in our country right now. So rapidly, Satan knows, Satan knows that sex reveals God's gospel in a way that nothing else does on earth. And he is hell-bent on destroying it, distorting it, and keeping it silent in the church. So that we don't touch it. Because if you say sex in the church today, what you get is, oh, sex... Not as God designed it. If you can't bring yourself to talk about, I mean, I hope you don't just talk about sex out in the open, but that's, I mean, have some decency. But what I'm saying is, Satan and culture and the world have trained you to keep silent on something that God said was good. So today, When I say sex, I mean, I'm not going to say it out and yell it out in public. But I'm not talking about what they're talking about. See, culture has distorted it for them. For me, it is a gospel, glorifying, God-magnifying union. To them, it's something that people do and shack up with on a one-night stand. And according to this book, that is not very good. Satan has done a great job at distorting sex, has he not? And I bet he loves that. Because in the garden, he said, I need to break that up. And he has done that. I wanted to end tonight with the way we talk about divorce. We've covered the theology. Let's talk about the how for a second okay rule number one the grace of jesus christ extends to divorcees divorce is not the unforgivable sin now that doesn't mean that people are necessarily we see in scripture that paul does disqualify people from leadership but not from sainthood meaning you're never beyond the bounds of god's saving grace because you've been divorced but perhaps your testimony and your witness has been harmed. But divorcees are not second-class citizens in the church. In fact, there have been men who've molded me more than most people ever have in my life who have been divorced. Sometimes, divorcees can be some of the most godly members in a church. Second, we honor the marriages of divorcees. Did you notice when Paul says that, or, or Jesus says that he who divorces wife and marries another commits adultery? Do you remember when he said that? That means that for those who were divorced and who got married again, those who are divorced for unbiblical, sinful reasons and got married again did enter into that marriage and into that union in sin. But God's will is never to resolve a divorce by breaking up another marriage. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Meaning, if two people got divorced and got remarried, our job is not to make sure we divorce those two. We've got two more divorces. Even though those marriages were entered into in sin, they are now marriages. Does that make sense? We don't need to, what I'm saying is this is very very key for the way that we look at marriages today. Because divorces are so rampant, we can't go around looking at people who have been divorced and looking at their marriages and calling it something less than a marriage. Third, our message to single divorcees is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. Be reconciled to your spouse. Go do in what Jesus did. Go after your bride. Well, she, she 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 moved somewhere. Go find her. Uh she didn't want me. Well. Give your life for her. Go and be reconciled to your spouse. Number four, we should never we should never convey divorce in a way that ostracizes divorcees. But we should never be silent on the issue of divorce. If we're doing it right, if we're if we're if we have holy love. People will understand that when we're talking about divorce, we're not denigrating people. We're just pointing to the gospel. Number five, a repentant divorcee who sees their sin and the redemptive goodness of Jesus will not make other people feel guilty for talking about divorce. Repentant divorcees will acknowledge that they failed morally and more importantly, they sinned against God. My mom today, to this day, will say, I sinned. She doesn't try to tell her sons and get out of it. Well, your mama, your mama was drunk. That's not an excuse, by the way. My mom was not drunk. But I've heard that before. Like, well, we were stupid. We were in Vegas. We got married. Well, I think repentant divorcees, for, for those who repent and believe in Jesus, the gates are wide open. And lastly, we should never talk about divorce without talking about God and the gospel. without talking about the links that Jesus went to, we have divorced God in our sin. Adam and Eve. Genesis 1 and 2 is a love story and a marriage. Genesis 3, as we're going to see next week, is a divorce. We have divorced Him in our sin, and He went after us. One of my favorite books in the Bible is... Y'all know which one I'm thinking of? Stephen, which one am I thinking Hosea. That's right. Hosea. That is a picture of the gospel. My goodness. I mean, how unbelievable is it to be cheated on, divorced, ignored, your wedding bed defiled, your wedding ring thrown off and thrown into your face, making a mockery of what you had, turning your love away, flaunting the adultery and the infidelity. That is our sin before a holy and loving God. And then Jesus said, I love her. I'm going to give my life for her. I mean, Hosea to me is one of the most unbelievable books in the Bible because there are really just not many I, I can't I don't know any any sinner who would do that. I don't know. Obviously, the women uh, weren't there, but uh, Mike Harris was our speaker at Manly Monday. Mike Harris and Leanne, I don't know if y'all knew this, got divorced, and then got married again. They both found Jesus, and then both went after each other. Isn't that unbelievable? That is a picture of the gospel. It just never happens. I know... I think Jesus looks at the bride of Christ and he says, I know you divorced me, I know you flaunted your adultery, you went after, as the prophets would say, you whored after your idols and you went after everything but me, but I'm going to love you. Not because of who you are, but because of who I am. That is the gospel, and that is the model for a man and a woman of integrity. I'm going to love you not because of what you've done. I'm, not, I'm going to love you not even because of who you are. I'm going to love you because of who Jesus is and what he's done. That is why. Here's something radical here. Kelly does not... I don't know if i told you this. Kelly came home one day. I was, uh, had my first pastorate. I was out in the middle of nowhere in the country what they call bourbon country in Kentucky. Rolling hills, gorgeous. Not a lot of people out there. Um, It was a hard... We were having a hard pastorate, um, and I was going through a hard time at that time. And I remember Kelly came in, and she goes... And she had a smile on her face, and she goes, I don't need you. And had a smile on her face. And I went, okay... She goes, I just want you to know that. I don't need you. And what she was saying was, You don't determine my joy. For the first, she'll tell you this. I'm going to tell you this. The first two times we've spent, we've, this, is, this is session three. The first two sessions I had told you how horrible a husband I was, I'm not, and I'm, I'm still learning that first year. But Kelly also will tell people that she was looking to me to make her happy. That's not the way marriage works. I can't bear the weight of that. I'm a sinner. I can't make her happy. There's only one man who can make her happy, and he's a God-man. His name's Jesus Christ. And when she walked in and said, I don't need you, what she was saying is, you're a sinner, and I know who Jesus is. And because of Jesus... Our marriage can work. I never thought about that. I just thought you love people. But here's the thing. Marriages fail because the wife wants the husband to fulfill her and vice versa. And if you put that on a sinner, they will never live up to your standard. You can't. Adam and Eve's marriage ran on God. And Satan's genius was to get them to question God's word. Did he really say that? And As soon as he had it, then what happened? They went from, hey, Adam went from, at last, to, it was her fault. We're going to talk about that next week. (laughs) There are going to be some laughs next week. But I, I wanted to end with that because Jesus came and sought his bride His dirty, promiscuous, rebellious bride. Not because of who she was, but because of who he is. And today, now I know, in light of Jesus, it doesn't matter if I go home tonight and Kelly has dropped something on top of my TV. Because I want to watch the NBA Western Conference finals tonight. I'm really looking forward to that. If she broke, if she broke, my TV, first of all, that would be the real problem. I'm calling it mine. it's not, not mine, it's ours. <laughs> I'm still love her. There is nothing my wife can do to me that will keep me from loving her. Because she, my love doesn't run on her, it runs on Jesus. That is the only way a marriage can work. That's why I want to end with this too. I think sometimes just because a a couple has been married 40 50 years does not mean it's a God-honoring marriage. I I get some guys (laughs) I get some guys sometimes go been married 60 years never had an argument. First of all I'm like what? (laughs) Have y'all ever heard people say that? I'm like dang My wife and I had an argument on our honeymoon. (laughs) And that's incredible. Don't let me take anything away from that. That is incredible. But you know what I think is just as incredible? Some guy telling me that they've had more fights than he can imagine, and he loves her more today than he did the day he met her. Your perfect marriage is not a perfect streak. A perfect marriage is going after a perfect Jesus. We need to get away from the myth of the perfect marriage. Your perfect marriage and how good it is is not determined on you tallying how many fights and how many words and how many whatever. Your marriage is determined on do you all disciple one another to, to, to advance one another in holiness toward the gospel. Let us live Hosea-like marriages. Father, you've given us such a precious gift in marriage. You've shown us what real, true, unconditional love is in Jesus. Thank you for the gospel. It's not something we could have concocted in our wisdom. It is not something we could have accomplished by our power. You, from start to finish, have done something that we would never have done for you. And now you ask us to shed that kind of love, picture and reflect and mirror that kind of love on our spouse. Father, give us the power to do that. Give us us the power to love sinful people. And let our marriages reflect the greatest news on earth, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all these things we ask in your son's name, amen. amen.